0: In 1973, a movie was released called The Sting. Some of you may know it, or at least remember it. It starred Robert Redford and Paul Newman. The movie tells the story of, really, a group of thieves who come together in hopes of stealing money from an even bigger thief which is uh, a movie premise that continues to resurface in our cultural storytelling. The starting point is perhaps uh, that uh, famous story of Robin Hood. And given the premise of the movie, that, uh, uh, which is kind of the glorification of crime and thievery, uh, I really can't recommend the movie, uh, except that it's considered a classic, Uh, It tells a compelling story, to be sure, and uh, it even earned no less than 10 Academy Awards. But it's a story that uh, came to mind for me as I was studying uh, Genesis 44 this week and and hearing the story of how Joseph framed his brother Benjamin. We, We might not quickly think of it that way, but that, that is the case. Joseph framed his brother Benjamin. Of course, he had done something similar already in the last chapter as, as he sent his brothers on their way back to the land of Canaan. He put the money that they had paid for the grain they had bought from him into the sacks that each of his brothers was carrying as food for their animal on the way home. Thus he arranged that each of them uh, should be struck with fear, not knowing how or why their money had been returned to them. But this time around he took his silver cup and uh, he put it in the sack of his brother Benjamin in order that he might accuse his brothers, and Benjamin in particular, of stealing from him after they had made their departure. Uh, From his house. Uh, Why would Joseph do this? Uh, It's clear from the story that Joseph was not that kind of a person. Uh, It's also clear from the story that uh, Joseph uh, did not feel bitter uh, and vindictive against his brothers. Uh, We made the point earlier that uh, when he recognized his brothers, he might have immediately made himself known to them and and had them all put to death for what they had done to him. Now we might point out that uh, he might have simply made himself known to them, saying, here I am, your brother Joseph, alive and well. How are things back at home? So why the setup and uh, why the orchestrated confrontation. We, we can't, of course, get into the mind of Joseph, uh, not beyond what the text actually tells us. So, beyond hearing and understanding that Joseph did, in fact, do these things, uh, the best thing we can do is, once again, uh, seek to understand it in light of our own sin, uh, in light of our own conviction for sin, and in light of our own salvation. So let's make the first point, the setup. Uh, It can hardly be denied that Joseph set up his brothers. Um, Genesis 44 verse 1 records, Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph told him. There are a couple things to note, uh, including the fact that Joseph indeed had grain to sell to his brothers. We ought not to lose sight of this piece of the story. This takes us back to Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph's interpretation of his dreams and how the dreams came true through seven years of plenty during which Joseph wisely stored up grain followed by the seven years of drought and and famine during which Joseph began supplying grain uh, from his storehouses to the people of Egypt and to the surrounding nations as well. Uh, It's a picture of Christ. Uh, and the abundance of His provision for sinners. And, and I ought to pause and ask, have you gotten in on, on the abundance? Uh, it's, it's only pride that keeps, us, uh, that keeps us to thinking we can provide for ourselves. It's only pride and even a a deadly self-reliance that makes us say, no, no, uh, uh, I don't need any of that. Uh, The the supply may be abundant, but uh, let it go to someone else. I'll fend for myself. But Joseph's brothers understood that they were dead men without returning to Egypt. Jacob himself, their father, uh, finally gave in and and sent Benjamin along with them as they returned to Egypt to buy more grain because, after all, Benjamin and all of them together were dead anyhow if they didn't go get more grain. Why can't we see this about our own sin and and our need for the salvation that Christ supplies? It truly is a deadly pride Truly is a, a remarkable blindness, and it's the same blindness that we see in the people who walked and talked with Jesus. Here was a man who made himself known to the, to the people as God himself in our own flesh. Here was a man who could heal the sick, who could cast out demons, who could even raise the dead. In John 11, even after Lazarus, you remember, had been in the, in, in the grave for four days so that his body was rotting in the grave, that was Martha's concern when Jesus said, Take away the stone. Here was Jesus who, yet after four days, raised Lazarus from the dead. Kill him, they said. Excuse me? Did you say kill him? Kill a man who was pouring out blessing on the people, healing the sick, giving deliverance from demon possession, even raising the dead. Yes, kill him. He deserves to die. But the fact that we can read the gospel story of Jesus' life and ministry and, and not be struck by the, the, the horrific and, and, and imbecilic unbelief of the people shows us that the same unbelief tends to reside within us. And and it's an unbelief that continues to show up in people today who know they're going to die, who know that their bodies will soon rot in the grave, and yet they will not receive Jesus as their Savior just before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then, of course, Jesus backed up his claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. He proved his power and his authority to be the source of resurrection and eternal life. So what, people say. Go away, Jesus. You might be good for something on Sundays, uh, you know, some routine religion, maybe a bit of spirituality thrown into the mix of my life. But come Monday, it's all about me. And it's all about my life. Never mind Our sin, never mind the grave that awaits us, never mind the judgment that all men know they will face in the end. Unbelief truly is astounding. Can we not see it? When we stop and think about it, of course, we're not given to stop and think about it, but we go our merry way when there is grain in Egypt, when there is a Savior named Jesus. Who has an abundant supply of what we need? Another thing that that shows us Christ is how Joseph returned to uh, his brothers the money that they uh, that they spent to buy grain from him. Uh, this is now the second time that that Joseph did this, and and it ought to remind us of what Isaiah fifty five says about the provision of God for our salvation. Come, everyone who thirsts, God says, through the prophet. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We might ask why it says that. Why, why does God put it in that way to his people? Come, buy but buy without money. And I think the point is, is that it should cost money. Uh, nothing is, is free in this life, despite what the political liberals will try to tell you. Uh, make no mistake, if something is free to you, it's, it's, it's costing somebody some, <laughs> the money. The, uh, nothing is free in this life. And, and, and it's the same, really, with our salvation in Christ. It's free to us because it cost God. The sacrifice. The life of his own son. So come and buy, because everything comes at a cost. But come, eat and drink without money and without price because... The cost has been paid. The price was paid by another, even by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as Joseph returned the money, do you see it now? Even as he returned the money that his brothers paid for the grain, the grain they needed to stay alive, so Christ pays the price for us they uh they say the older you get the worse your short-term memory becomes anybody know that uh, i can attest to that uh, but what happens also i guess is that the memories from a distant past become more uh, uh more vivid in our memory and uh, i can attest to that as well the other day i i uh, remembered how when i was a kid and we were uh, we would spend time in, in a local park, and uh, there were drinking fountains uh, spread throughout the park. And uh, these drinking fountains were always running. In other words, you, you didn't have to press a button or, or push a lever to turn the water on. You just walked up and you drank. I, I don't know why I forgot that, and I don't know why I remembered it. Except that it serves as a good illustration, does it not, for an abundant supply. Free to the sinner, provision of the water of life. No button to press, no lever to push. Just come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and drink. And yet, it was a setup our main point here. Why, why did Joseph set up his brothers in order to charge them, even falsely charge them, with wrongdoing? Again, it doesn't, uh, doesn't help us to get into the psychology of it. Uh, we can only note the effect that, uh, that as Joseph returned the money that each of his brothers had used to buy grain from him, and even as he placed his silver cup in his, brother's, uh, his brother Benjamin's sack, Conviction was brought to the heart of each of his brothers. Even for what they had done to their brother Joseph so many years ago. In fact, several chapters ago, if you recall in Genesis 42, we heard that the brothers said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that uh, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. And, uh, and has this ever happened to you? Uh, that something bad happens in your life and, and you immediately think, uh, well, it's because I did such and such, uh, that thing, years ago. That's why this is happening to me. Well, it may or may not be the case, but the conviction you feel is a good thing. so don't ignore it. Here is a, a quite counterintuitive part of our faith and, and how God works in our hearts. We, we think of conviction as a bad thing. after all, it makes us feel bad. but conviction is like pain. Have you ever have you ever thought that that pain, can be a good thing, is, is a good thing. If you touch a hot stove and, and feel pain, it makes you pull back your hand, lest you be burned more seriously. Pain tells you to turn back. Pain prompts you to stop what you're doing. And so with conviction for sin, it's a, it's a good thing. It, it tells you to turn back. Even more, it, it, it tells you to look beyond yourself a Savior. The Heidelberg Catechism explains it in this way. Why why does God want His law pointedly preached to His people? And the answer is, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and, and righteousness. So, why does God leave you to struggle with sin, to keep falling to temptation? Well, the answer is to destroy your pride, to, to unravel your unbelief, uh, to bring you all the more, to cast yourself upon His mercy in Christ. Just think of that. You, you, you may think your sin is so scandalous, and it is, but God is less concerned... For the scandal of your sin than he is for your faith and reliance upon his mercy. The weird thing is is that it might it might yet be your pride that that causes you to beat up on yourself for your sin rather than crying out for the mercy of God in Christ. It's the pride of unbelief that leaves us to despair of ourselves as if our despair could atone for our sins. That's why the old hymn says, uh, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So the second point is the confrontation. Confrontation. The sting operation of Joseph uh, leads to this in verse 6. When he overtook them, he being the steward of Joseph, and remember that Joseph's silver cup is uh, or, or was planted, as we say in our own day, was planted uh, in Benjamin's sack. When he overtook them, uh, he spoke to them the words that Joseph told him to speak, um, Why have you repaid evil for good? The brothers, of course, were dumbfounded. uh, But as the cup was found in the sack belonging to Benjamin, I think there's a bit of drama there, is there not? The steward knew exactly where the cup was. He put it there. But he started with the oldest, worked his way down to the youngest until in that last sack was found Joseph's silver cup. I don't think we are meant uh, to miss that, uh, that they were on the verge of success. <laughs> they were on their way out of town. The mission had been accomplished. They had acquired the grain that they needed. They had Benjamin with them. Everything had worked out. They're on their way home. Perhaps, uh, perhaps their past sin against their brother Joseph wasn't rising up against them and yet along comes a rider approaching them from behind uh, perhaps they saw him coming we aren't we aren't told it's it was probably more than just the one man the steward uh, but probably a, a kind of posse uh, like the old westerns say uh, for us it was it was probably like seeing those red and blue lights uh, in your rearview mirror what now they must have thought So here we have a a, a confrontation for sin, uh, another necessary part to how salvation comes for the sinner. I ought to be very clear that God never sets up the sinner in any kind of dishonest way, as Joseph did. Uh, Why Joseph chose to do it that way, we we don't know. But there was a setup, and and now came the confrontation. Uh, Why have you repaid evil for good? A, a cup is missing and and uh, you are those who have so recently been uh, in the master's house uh, they say why does my lord speak such things uh, uh far be it from your servants to do such a thing well let's take a look and uh and so they did and so the cup is found in the worst possible place that it could be found it was found in benjamin's sack and here is uh, here is the point where conviction leads to confrontation, and, and to the necessary despair for sin. To this point, the the brothers have only thought, uh, hmm, uh, maybe this is because we sold our, our brothers, uh, sold our brother into into slavery. Uh, they had sold Joseph uh, into slavery. Now they were in Egypt. The connection was apparently not lost on them. Uh, Little did they know, of course, that the powerful Egyptian ruler that they were dealing with was their brother Joseph, but otherwise, there was conviction. But it was only conviction, and conviction is one thing. Confrontation is another, and it also is necessary. Here here is the, the preaching of God's Word each Lord's Day when the preaching of the word includes the law of god we, we need to see that that beyond some nagging guilt beyond the vague and general sense that we do bad things that our sin is really against god himself we need to be confronted that we have sinned and in so doing we have hurt other people we have hurt ourselves our sin is against god so that our sin doesn't just cost us peace and and good feeling about ourselves it puts us in the path of god's judgment for sin this is what david realized and and confessed in psalm 51 and in verse 3 he confesses for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me but that's not saying all that much right I know my transgressions, my sin is, is before me. If you ask people on the street, uh, are you a sinner? They will likely answer, well, sure, nobody's perfect. And this is where the brothers were as well, it would seem. They, they knew their transgression, their sin was ever before them, especially as they were spending time in Egypt. But then David makes this confession immediately next in Psalm 51 against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And how did David go from covering up his sin, then to confessing his sin, and now to the confession that he had sinned against God? Well, he did so by way of confrontation. For David, it was confrontation brought by the ministry of the prophet Nathan, if you remember the story. And for the brothers of Joseph, it was the steward chasing them down, lights flashing and siren blaring, chasing them down and finding the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And so it was that now they tore their clothes In chapter 42, when they thought that maybe, just maybe, this trouble is coming upon us because we sold our brother into slavery, they they didn't tear their clothes then. No, at that point, it was just a nagging guilt. There was some conviction, but the full confrontation was yet to come. Now it had come. Now they tore their clothes in anguish for the trouble they were in. Even more, when they arrived back at Joseph's house, it says they fell before him to the ground. We are told that uh, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. No surprise there, right? He was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Brothers and sisters, that's where we need to be before God and before Christ our Savior. Enough of all polite, measured, pride-reserving religion. Young or old, male or female, scandalous sin or casual sin on our record. We all need to tear our clothes, even more to fall before him to the ground in the trouble of our sin. And we ought to be willing to do so because the promise of God is that there is a solution. And this is the third point. Are there not so many situations that we find ourselves in where there is no apparent solution? We pray and we pray. We long for a solution. None comes. And maybe we even start to give up hope. But here is, but here the solution is clear. That God provides in Christ the forgiveness of sins and even the credit to us of the righteousness of Christ. And this is what we see in Judah by by what he says and, and does to provide a solution. First of all, he recounts everything that has happened. They first came down to buy grain. Joseph accused them of being spies and demanded that they bring their youngest brother, uh, down in the meantime, he kept Simeon in prison, if you recall and and uh, they went home and uh, in time they uh, Simeon's still in prison uh, finally, they had to bring their youngest brother down, much to their father's uh, consternation and dismay and, and and now what? if they return home without their brother, it it's, it's going to kill Jacob. and what will life be worth? What has life been worth after Joseph is gone? So now what will life be worth if the loss of Benjamin is added to the loss of Joseph? So Judah has a solution. And it really is a magnanimous solution. Take me instead. Hold me accountable. We might wonder... What Judah really thought, was he, uh, was he utterly perplexed by the silver cup being found in Benjamin's sack, or, or did he figure that the rotten little kid actually did steal the silver cup? We aren't told, and, and neither do we need to know exactly the mind of Judah. Instead, we, we only need to see that he offered himself as a substitute. And that should sound familiar. Familiar. Verse 33 records after Judah had recounted the whole story. Now, therefore, please let me, your servant, remain instead of the boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers. And there can hardly be a more perfect picture of Christ and his substitutionary atonement, as we say, for us. Judah has clearly come full circle. He has done a 180. Under the load of guilt and misery in the household of his father Jacob, he had departed. He had married into a a pagan family. He had seen two of his sons die for their wickedness before the Lord. He had had two more sons who were twins, and he had returned to the covenant community, apparently a changed man. And we see that changed man in this story as Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin, his brother. His father's favoritism aside, his own demise notwithstanding, Judah offered himself in the place of his brother Benjamin. Do you know that this is what Christ has done for you if you are a believer in him? Conviction is necessary. Confrontation completes conviction and brings conviction to the full. But what is the solution? According to the plan of God, according to the holiness of God, according to the offense of your sin against His majesty, according to the justice of God for which the angels praise Him, according to the grace and mercy of God, You are Benjamin, and Christ is your Judah. Which is to say, Christ has stepped into the sinner's place. And if you will set aside your pride, if you will receive the conviction of sin, if if you will be confronted, and as you believe in Christ, He will be your substitute. Christ is the solution to our sin, the solution that we urgently and direly need. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let those who receive conviction and confrontation for sin believe. And let us together rejoice that Christ has stepped into our place and that he is the eternal solution to our sin. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you that from beginning to end, we get to hear the gospel as we open your word, O God. And in these events, we can so clearly see Christ. May each of us indeed see him. Not just intellectually, but with true faith, may we see Christ, may we trust Him as our substitute on the cross, taking upon Himself our punishment for our sin. Grant us this faith and none other, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.